When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have faith and life in him. This is the word of the Lord. This lection, appropriate for the fourth Sunday in Eastertide, finds John bringing to a close now his gospel. He tells us four instances of people coming to faith in the resurrected Lord. First is the beloved disciple. We know that John did not write this gospel. It's written a good 60 or 70 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But it's written by someone who loved John very much. So much, in fact, that he never calls him by name. He simply calls him the disciple whom Jesus loved. Surely Jesus must have loved John in a special way because this author of the gospel loves John in such a way. He says that after the women had come to the tomb early on Sunday morning and then had gone to tell the disciples they had found the stone rolled away and the body gone, that two, Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, rushed to the tomb. Peter looked in, went away, but the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, went inside, saw the grave clothes, but not the body, and believed. Just by seeing an empty tomb and the grave clothes, John believed. The second one John mentions is Mary of Magdala. She was there first thing, but all she saw was the stone had been rolled away and the tomb was empty. She had run to tell the disciples, and after Peter and John had peered inside and had gone back to see the others, Mary was standing there. She saw a man in this twilight, that early morning, she thought he was the gardener of this expensive garden provided by Joseph of Arimathea until she heard Mary. My Lord, she said, don't touch me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. When she heard her name called, Mary of Magdala believed. The third, ten of the disciples, that same evening, that first Sunday night, 
in the upper room where they'd had Passover with Jesus on Thursday night for fear of the authorities in the city of Jerusalem had the doors locked when suddenly Jesus appeared. They saw him and believed. Fourth is Thomas. Thomas said, I'm not believing unless I can touch him. I not only want to see those marks on his hands and feet and the gash in his side, I have to touch him in order to believe. And the next Sunday night, Jesus came again, and Thomas believed. That's the way John recounts the story. This author of John's Gospel recounts the story. Let's take a look at the lection for today. Number one. Rabbi Zimmerman did a great job for us in our Barton Clinton Gordy series this year, reminding us that most of the people who first heard Torah heard it, were not able to read it themselves. First, they had a long oral tradition, stories told around campfires, but even after the Torah was written down, most of the people could not read nor write. They heard it. They heard it. Now, when you cannot read nor write, the unforgivable sin is forgetting. So you have to hear key words and remember them. And Rabbi Zimmerman said that the stories of the Bible are told so that key words get mentioned again and again and people's ears are supposed to perk up. It stirs in them a remembrance of that word and how important it was. Well, Christian scholars do that as well. Dr. Raymond Brown gave an adult lifetime teaching New Testament studies at Yale Divinity School, and his specialty was the Gospel of John. He ended up writing two volumes, almost 800 pages each, almost 1,600 pages on this one Gospel of 21 chapters. And he says that John is now stirring up key words from the earlier part of his gospel in this very last chapter. Go back to chapter 14. The disciples were becoming more and more aware that something terrible was about to happen in Jerusalem, and Jesus speaks to them and says, words that Dr. Tankersley and I read at funerals to you often, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. How did our text begin today? And that same evening Jesus came he came. And a week later, he came again. It's the same word as in chapter 14. I will come again. He came. I will come again. He came. He also had said to them, My shalom, my peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And what does he say three times here? Shalom, shalom, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. My peace I give to you. My peace. A month ago, I was reading an article written by a Franciscan priest who serves and has served now for 25 years in the city of Jerusalem. You know that St. Francis of Assisi established that order more than 800 years ago in a tiny little village in, in the middle part of Italy. 
And these Franciscan priests and monks have done great work all these years. Father Peter Vasco works in Jerusalem, and he was writing specifically about what the Franciscans do during Holy Week. What do they do during Holy Week? First of all, he said, we, we immerse ourselves in the story. We read the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and inevitably we come to Thursday night and then to Friday, the trial, the flogging. We go out into the streets of Jerusalem, and of course they are packed with people. People come from everywhere to Jerusalem for Holy Week, and they are there in great numbers. You have to just push your way through the crowds to visit the stations of the cross. But we visit them one after the other after the other, remembering the jeering crowds of Jesus on time, remembering his stopping and speaking to the women, remembering that he fell to his knees and had to be assisted in carrying this great cross member out to the place of crucifixion. And finally, he said, we Franciscans, have an actual replica of the body of Jesus. And it has nails driven through hands and feet, a great gash in its side. For 25 years, he said, I've been one of the four who takes this replica down at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday. We wrap it in a shroud and we carry it through the streets until we get to the tomb at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and we take it into the deepest part of that cave and we place it there. It's a long day Saturday, he said. It's a long day. And then, just before the sun rises, someone comes running out of the church of the Holy Sepulchre saying, He is not here. He has been raised. And every Christian church in Jerusalem begins to ring its bells. Bells ring and candles are lighted, and they ring and candles are lighted. He is not dead. He has been raised. I tell you, he said, Paul was right. When he wrote years before the four Gospels were written, death has no victory here. No victory for death. Number two, he breathed on them, it says. Now, all the scholars I read just before I went away on vacation said that this is obviously an allusion to Genesis 2. When in that older of the two creation stories, it says, in the beginning, after God had set things into order, after God had created one thing and then another and another, he finally got around to humans. And when he created first humans, he took a deep breath, ruach in Hebrew, and breathed into this little human his own ruach, his own breath and spirit, and the little man became a living being. And now Jesus breathes on them. He breathes on them who were devastated by the events of Friday, who were cowering in a locked room in Jerusalem, and they have new life. Once again, they are living beings. What John has promised in chapter 3 of his gospel has come true. They have life, life abundant, and now life everlasting. A month ago, our board of the Oklahoma Center for Community and Justice was having its quarterly meeting. Bishop Slattery and Monsignor Patrick Gallus had been generous and kind enough to invite the board to have its lunch and meeting at the new uh, Catholic Charity Center out in North Tulsa. We were offered tours of the facility. It is beautiful. Beautiful. A chapel 
great exposed beams inside stained glass. They spent $20 million on the facility out there. They have a prenatal center for women who are not being given good medical care before they deliver a baby. The equipment's the latest and best available. They have dentists who volunteer to come in and work on people's teeth who cannot afford a dentist. I looked in those dentist offices. The equipment is as modern as the one used by the dentist I, I go see. They have food pantry. They have clothing that's gathered and cleaned and hung on racks for people who need it. They have emergency housing for women who are battered, for children who do not have another safe place to go. It's really amazing. You know the person who may have first begun what is today called Catholic Charities? It was in New York City. He was a fellow named Pierre Toussaint. He was born in Dominique, a French Haitian colony for slaves. He was a black slave owned by French owners. They named him Pierre Toussaint. He was born 1766, 10 years before we declared our independence, just to sort of put it in perspective. 10 years before that he was born, when he was 20, his slave owners brought him to New York City. They decided he had an artistic ability, and they apprenticed him to become a women's hairdresser, to cut women's hair, style it. He fell in love with a young uh, slave woman. He wanted to be sure she wanted to be his wife for the right reasons, so he had made enough money by that time to buy her freedom and then ask her if she would marry him. She did. Within 20 years of his beginning his new profession in New York City, he bought the business for whom he worked. He continued to do women's hair in New York City, some of the most prosperous, famous women in New York. For years and years, he lived to be 87 years old. He became very generous to the Roman Catholic Church, reached out to the poor, the disenfranchised, those many of whom were coming out of slavery by that time. He was asked in his 80s to what he attributed the successes of his life, and he said, after I was brought to New York City, I was taken to church for the first time. And I heard that I was a child of God, loved by God. And every morning from that day on, I was at six o'clock mass, and I was careful to be back at five o'clock p.m. for mass twice a day every day for the last 66 years. He breathed on them. He gave them life. He gave them vision. He gave them abundant life, everlasting life. Number three. The third important affirmation here is about Thomas's believing. Now, I know we call him Doubting Thomas. But the word, even though it's translated doubt here, I'm going to try to make a case with you is not doubt. It's disbelieving. Maybe there's no difference. In Greek, the word for believing is pistos, and the word used here for Thomas is apistos. Just an A added to the front of the word. Now, we know this in other uses, Greek words that have come into English. For the word, for example, there's a Greek word, pathos. Pathos. 
We usually think of it as sadness, but it means feeling. And so what is apathos? Apathetic. Having no feeling. No feeling. So Jesus says to him, Thomas, don't be apistos, be pistos. Don't be disbelieving, be believing. Move from not believing that I am the long-awaited Messiah of God to believing that I am the long-awaited Messiah of God. And by believing, you can have life, life abundant, life everlasting. I was reading an article the other day written by a professor at the University of Missouri. Dr. Scott Carnes teaches in the School of Liberal Arts at the University of Missouri. He's published six books of poetry. Then he's gotten interested in mystical religions of the world and has written three books about his own religious experience. He was recently writing about being on Mount Athos in Greece, visiting one of the world's most famous monasteries. And he said he was particularly being blessed by his visit with these priests. They were talking about salvation and that salvation is not a moment. Salvation is a process of recovery, they called it, a process of recovery by which God is moving us from having so long been separated from him to being rightly related to him. And then Dr. Karn says one day suddenly there appeared an evangelical Christian from the United States. And here are these Greek monks who've been there for years and years and in many ways for 2,000 years and this fellow from America said, But do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? And one monk said, No, we believe in sharing him. We believe in sharing him. If, in fact, we have moved from apistos to pistos, then we have been moved by the presence of God a moment, a day, a year at a time of recovery, recovery from being so long separated from him. Okay, number four. Thomas says the right words, doesn't he? My Lord and my God. The words that are written here are the Greek words, of course. We have the word in the mosaic at the south end of the great hall, kurios, the Lord. A part of the mass is the Kyrie, Lord have mercy upon us, Christe eleison, Christ have mercy upon us. It's a Greek word. But what Thomas says is in fact the Shema from the Torah scroll of Deuteronomy. When Jesus was asked, you remember, what is the greatest commandment, he quoted the Shema right out of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. You must have no other God but him. You must love him with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. The Lord translates the name given to Moses at the burning bush. God was an even older name that the Israelites knew for God. So it is hero Israel, the Eye Asher Eye, your Elohim, is one. You must have no other but him. 
After Alexander the Great, when more Jews could read and write Greek than could read and write Hebrew, they translated their own scriptures into Greek, and the Shema became the Kurios Theos that Thomas here utters. The Shema. The Lord, our God, is one. The Lord, our one God, was in fact present in Jesus of Nazareth. Trudy Harris is a hospice nurse in Jacksonville, Florida. She's written about her many years as a hospice nurse. She said that one day she was visiting with a woman who had lung cancer, was dying. She said as she visited with her, the woman asked, Do you see that angel at the foot of my bed? And Trudy said, I'm a registered nurse. I know what strong pain-killing drugs can do to a person's mind. I was new as a hospice registered nurse. I shook my head that I didn't see the angel. The woman said, standing right there, and he's smiling, he's smiling. And a few hours later, she died. Trudy says, several years later, she was visiting with a man who was also terminally ill. She was sitting by the bed, chatting quietly with him, when he said, doesn't John look wonderful? She asked, who's John? John's my son, he said. He was killed in Vietnam. He's sitting right there in the chair. Don't you see him? Ribbons on his shoulder. He's so handsome. Really? Trudy asked. Yes. And he said to me a few minutes ago, Dad, I've come to take you home. And a few hours later, he died. One day she said, I was visiting a man in his home, terminally ill, sitting by his bed, just chatting quietly with him. And he said, Who's that man out there by the lake? And I looked out the window, she said, and I saw a willow tree, a weeping willow. I said to the men in the bed, that's a weeping willow tree. He said, I see the tree. Who's the man standing underneath the tree? She said, I don't know. And about that time, a 10-year-old grandson came bounding into the room, went over and hugged his granddad in the bed. And his granddad said, see that man standing under that willow tree out there? Little boy said, I don't see him, granddad. He said, it's Jesus. I see him. And a couple of hours later, he died. Judy said, I've been a hospice nurse for a long time. And a few times, I've seen the man standing under the tree. Amen.